Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Myanmar, or Burma, if that's the name you prefer, is one of a small set of countries, nations that despite natural bounty and a large population, are underdeveloped due to conflict, economic mismanagement, and international isolation. Yet Myanmar has a, has a habit of enchanting those who have the opportunity to visit the country. One such person was Aaron Murphy, author of Burmese Haze, U.S. Policy and Myanmar's Opening and Closing. Aaron had a front row seat to see the major changes in U.S. policy towards Myanmar under the Obama administration, in reaction to the country's opening and democratic reform, a process halted by the 2021 coup. Erin Murphy has worked on Asian issues since 2001. She spent her career in several public and private sector roles, including as an analyst on Asian political, foreign policy, leadership issues with the CIA, a director for Indo-Pacific with the Development Finance Agency, leading her boutique advisory firm focused on Myanmar, and as an English teacher with the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program in Sakaken, Japan. Today, Erin and I talk about Myanmar, what drove its brief reopening, how U.S. policy towards the country changed, and whether Myanmar's experience is developing us today at a time when sanctions are back in the news. So, Aaron, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Maybe it's best to start with the question, what brought you to Myanmar in the first place? Well, first, thank you for having me today. I'm, I'm really happy to talk about my book and the journey to Myanmar, and hopefully will lead others on the same journey. Um, Myanmar happened to me as a bit of a, a happy accident, I can say. Um, I had been working on Asia, as you noted in my bio, since 2001, and my first job out of grad school was as a political analyst at the CIA. And my account that I had been following was really slow, didn't give me a lot of opportunities to write or brief senior officials or feel like I was really contributing to the mission or impact of you know, helping advise uh, foreign policy um, and you know, giving our principals the best information that they could have to help make decisions. So I asked my management if I could potentially have, um, you know, join a task force or find bin Laden or do something more interesting where I'd be able to prove myself, but also have a chance to really use those analytic chops that I had been trained for. And so this was in uh, 2008, in April 2008. And I got my chance. Um, there was a constitutional referendum, the first vote in 18 years in the country. Um, and there was an expectation that there'd be a lot of violence. Uh, political movements, political events often in Myanmar were accompanied by violence. And the then Bush administration was really concerned about that. Just, I'd say, seven months earlier, uh, you had the so-called Saffron Uprising, um, with the monks took to the streets to protest rise in um, food and fuel and commodity prices that really hit the wallets of the everyday uh, Myanmar citizen. And there was a brutal crackdown where thousands were killed and even more injured. So on the heels of that, we had the first election in 18 years. Uh, so I was assigned, it was a one-month assignment to kind of get smart on the issue, um, cover it closely, make sure there was no violence, coordinate with folks just to make sure everyone had the information they needed to assess what was happening um, and to respond if there was any violence on the ground. But about 
two weeks after I started reading in and, and getting smart on the issue, Cyclone Nargis hit. Cyclone Nargis was a once in a 500 year storm that took a hard right and went right across the country's delta, which, um, you know, the breadbasket, uh, thousands of people lived, um, and it stalled over the commercial capital of Yangon as well. Um, the whole place was in, in crisis. And there I was just hanging out, trying to, you know, have a very interesting account and, um, a one month assignment turned into, you know, a completely new life, both professionally and personally. So as noted in my intro, you know, Myanmar is one of a small number of countries that feel like it should be more developed than it is. It's got a lot of natural resources, got a large population. Um, it, it had a pretty good stock, I guess, of infrastructure, you know, immediately after independence. Um, but it isn't, clearly. It's one of the world's poorest countries. Um, and that's all due to economic mismanagement. Well, not just that, but, you know, economic mismanagement, policy, international isolation. But I guess if you might give a sense of kind of what are the reasons why Myanmar is so underdeveloped? Sure, it's... A country that has everything, as you say, it's rich in natural resources. It has every gem, semi-precious stone, mineral that you can think of. There could be rare earths there. It's you know yet to be discovered. There's gas reserves, um, old growth teak forests. Um, its location is highly strategic and also you know good for um, trade, whether it's sea or air and tourism. It, it has everything, and and even in the post-independence years, it was also a hub for education and and healthcare. And now it's at the bottom of every one of those indicators. And you know, the story of Myanmar is is really tragic and and sad. And there's, you know, s- several contributing factors, but I think the two biggest ones was the gross economic mismanagement of the military government and the ongoing civil wars that engulfed the country uh, following World War II. It was never really a peaceful place, despite what folks I think have in their their image of what Myanmar, which is you know full of Buddhists, loving kindness. But um, the struggle for autonomy and independence uh, was not just felt in the capitals, but also in the periphery of the country, where you had a very distinct ethnic groups that had their own languages, customs, um, and you know their own territories. Um, and that were either close to the British or were not. Um, and, you know, I think those tensions really carried over. Um, but these wars took a huge toll in the 40s and 50s. And even into the 60s, you had uh, the world's longest running insurgency, the Karen National Union, were just miles outside of the capital of Ran- Rangoon, or now we know it as Yangon. Um It's like being in Washington, D.C., uh, if you know this area, and, you know, having a militia, but a well-trained and well-armed militia in like Bethesda or, you know, not even across the river in Virginia. Um, you know, just to give you some perspective, if you're in the mid-Atlantic of, of how close that was. Um, so that took up resources and, you know, there was sabotage on transportation links. Um, it, it just wasn't very safe. Um, but it, it just really whittled the bank account down because a lot of that went into building up the military and these seeds kind of helped build 
up to the military that we see today, but it was the military that took power. It was Ne Win, who was um, the commander in chief of the armed forces or the defense secretary in the uh, independent cabinet or the cabinet post-independence. Um, he took power in 1958 first. Um, it was in a sort of bloodless coup, but basically um, he was frustrated with the lack of decision-making in the government. And a lot of that extended to what do we do about the insurgencies that are engulfing the country? It wasn't just ethnic insurgencies, but ideological ones as well. Uh, the Burma Communist Party um, was very powerful had allies in China with um, their Communist Party and uh, was all over their eastern flank. Um, and then finally, Ne Win got a taste of power and took over for good in 1962. And even if the military can bring order, they're not economists or policymakers and should never be in power for any extended period of time. This is not like a Roman dictatorship, which on paper it did say that and that they would be in power for two years and then turn it over. But in 1962, it was for good. And in the next uh, two and a half decades, um, Nguyen drove the country into the ground. Uh, he did it through a series of demonetizations, which rendered the currency useless. So people lost wealth overnight. I think the one that if you follow Burmese history most closely or recent history, uh, the one that everyone points to is the 1987 demonetization, uh, where he changed the notes that were more friendly to his uh, favorite numerological-based uh, number, which is nine. Um, so the notes were 45 um, and 90, and that basically rendered all currency completely worthless. Um, and, and that led to the start of protests that eventually led to the 88 uprising. At first, it was an economic protest, and then it turned into a pro-democracy one. Um, people were just sick of the military. Uh, Nguyen also pursued a socialist uh, program um, throughout his tenure. He nationalized several businesses. I mean, people would go to sleep one night, closing up shop and wake up and find a military officer outside of their company the next saying that they were in charge. Um, a lot of the decisions he made, he just didn't, he's not a policymaker and really made every wrong decision. But, you know, during this entire time as well, you had these ongoing wars that really sucked up a lot of resources. So instead of putting it in things like healthcare or education, um, it, went more into military coffers than anything else. So by 1987, you had a worthless currency. People had lost their wealth overnight, however big or small. Um, the education system was appalling. And suddenly you had the junta applying for least developed country status, which was just a slap in the face for folks that knew how amazing the country could have been, but also was. Um, you know, I, I've heard anecdotes from South Koreans who went to Myanmar in the 60s and 70s as well and said, you know, it would be wonderful if South Korea could be as developed as Myanmar. Um, and it just fell apart. So after the 1988 coup where you had the State Law and Order Restoration Council come in, I mean, there was a series of coups at that time. And then that eventually turned to the State Peace and Development Council. I mean, these guys were, were even worse with 
you can even call it economic policy. And there were kleptocrats too, and, and established um, a system of patronage and cronyism, which meant that, you know, a select group of folks got a handful of concessions, whether it was land or permits, or, you know, you can build hotels um, for this and that. And um, yeah, it, it just became this patronage system that was very good for generals and nobody else. Um, but it was just, you know, it became an authoritarian kleptocracy. There, there was a lot of detail there, and I want to maybe drill down on on one thing you said, which was which was the um, the long running ethnic conflicts uh, that happened in Myanmar over this period. Um, you know, I think I think today a lot of the attention has been on um, the conflict in Rakhine State with with the Rohingya um, and and the what the military has done to that ethnic group. Um, but of course, that's not the only ethnic conflict, as you note. There's um, with the Karen National Union and others. I wonder if you might talk more about um, these long-running about, about the long-running ethnic conflicts along the border. We will talk about the Rohingya um, later on in the interview, I think. But for now, kind of what are the roots of some of these ethnic conflicts along the border? Sure, I'll give you an overview. And you know, I really recommend um, looking at books by Martin Smith and Berta Lintner that really take a, a good look into what these conflicts, where the roots came from. Um, you know, some of these were sown before World War II um, and also grew up in response to a continued military regime. But, you know, it's it's complex. <laughs> that's, that's the simplest way to put it, in that this is a country with dozens of ethnicities um, and and, you know, customs and rights, and many of them were guaranteed their own rights in the independence agreement between Aung San, who's Aung San Suu Kyi's father, um, and the leader of independence, and the British government. For example, the Shan ethnic group was promised uh, an opportunity, if you will, to secede from um, the country within seven years if things weren't going very well for them. There were a handful of other ethnicities that were able to cobble out something in that independence agreement. And there were others that were cut out completely, including the Kren. Um, and the Kren fought with the British during World War II. It was uh, Aung San and the Bamar that uh, fought with the Japanese. And so you also have, you know, the, the tension there that a lot of these ethnic groups just didn't forget. Um, and you had the Kachin fighting with uh, U.S. soldiers as well. Um, but, you know, on some of these ethnic conflicts, um, some of it was the way that they were treated by the main ethnicity, and especially when it came to the independence agreement and what degree of autonomy they had and, and what, you know, rewards they expected to earn, given that they fought with the allied powers instead of the Axis powers um, and their contribution to making Burma independent. So I think that, you know, that didn't sit well. So the Kren National Union or their armed wing, Kren National Liberation Army, that conflict kicked off in 1949 um, and was one of the first. And it was just they could not get anywhere with the um, the parliament or the new independent government and just decide, and decide it was in their best interest to take up arms and fight for the rights that they were promised by the British and that were not awarded to them by the Burmese government. Um, in succession, uh, some of the Shang groups did as well. And um, when Nay Win took over, and it was very clear that the 
the items that they were able to negotiate in the independence agreement were not going to come to fruition for them. So that was another thing in, in finding the junta that they weren't their rights were going to be uh, impeded, and they were also being attacked by the military writ large. You also had the ideological uh, conflicts, as I mentioned, the Burma Communist Party. Um, you know that was rooted in more ideology. And so, you know, they were fighting from the eastern flank as well and, um, you know, wanted more of a communist government. And they were pretty strict. And I would say that Burma has some deep socialist and communist linkages that were even present before World War II. So there was that kind of strong uh, political and ideological divide that that had been there for years and just simmered over post-independence. In the later years, um, some took up arms because um, they were getting pummeled by the military and had to fight back in some way. And this was a country awash in weapons, whether it was post-World War II or Vietnam War, where uh, weapons were ending up um, in their backyards. And even with the success of the Afghanistan wars, um, whether it was against Russia or the United States, we'd hear stories, and I'd say we when I was in government, but also as a private citizen, hearing stories of how that Silk Road, um, some of these weapons ended up in folks' hands, or they learned how to make weapons themselves, like the United Wa State Army. And that's another aspect to this, is resources. So some of the groups that fought for independence more for political gain, it also had a resource angle. Um, a lot of where the ethnic groups sit sit are on incredible resources. Just for example, at Kinchin State, you had jade, um, the teak forest. They're on top of amber, which um, is a hot commodity right now, and especially because m- much of the amber has fossils in them. Um, you have gold and other minerals that are used in um, computers and, and other in smartphones. Um, you have also narcotics. So before it was uh, opium and now it's meth. And so you have these super labs in Sean State um, and, you know, they're they're not wanting they don't want to give that up. So you have that aspect to it as well. Um and then you have, you know, other other insurgencies, I, I guess you could say, that have popped up in recent memory. Um, Arakan Army is the latest one. And, you know, I think this kind of fits with, with um, you know, the military not giving up power and also, you know, cynically for some, you know, according to some of the former government officials that are now under house arrest or in jail, that they're just looking for their piece of autonomy and land because everybody else is doing it. But that's not maybe the case in Arakan Army, but there's been, you know, a few opportunists out there that have some weapons and take pot shots. But it's it's pretty complicated. Some of them, you know, it started politically post-independence um, that just fed on the ethnic tensions that were certainly apparent before World War II. It's resources and economics, it's ideology. And sometimes it shifts over time. So it's, it's you know, a rich tapestry of, of wants, needs, desires, and conflicts. So we haven't, we haven't talked about uh, Myanmar's kind of brief period of, of reopening and, and political reform yet. Um, and I want to start maybe with, with the U.S. policy towards Myanmar. You know, in reading, in reading your book, I hadn't quite realized how, how uh, much debate there was internally about 
um, relieving sanctions on on Myanmar um, in response to um, some of its reforms, um, which of course in retrospect makes complete sense that it would be <laughs> contentious. Uh, but I wonder if you might uh, talk through um, what those debates were like, what those discussions were like, who the various players were, um, as the U.S. considered whether to kind of um, whether to kind of start lifting the sanctions on the on the country. Sure, uh, those debates were brutal. I will tell you that. Um, Myanmar policy became more of an emotional issue. It's strategic, certainly, but you know I think it's driven quite a lot through a human rights lens. That's how it really began and and kind of solidified itself into the American policymakers' conscious. So for many. Um, young senators and congressmen and women um, and young policymakers in the executive branch, their first introduction to Myanmar was the 88 uprising that was televised and it was horrific. Um, You know, seeing the military turn their guns on their own people, um, throwing people in prison, the human rights abuses that you would hear about. And then, you know, through that study, also learning about the awful human rights abuses that were happening in ethnic areas. You know, I think a lot of folks are, are focused on Cox's Bazaar and um, Bangladesh, where a lot of refugees are from uh, from Rakhine State. But there have been camps on the Thai-Burma border for decades, some since the 60s, mostly um, from the 80s. And again, they're being repopulated. And you know, those policymakers soon, you know, went up through the system and and became senior policymakers and didn't see any changes. So this was an issue that kind of stuck with them, got under their skin. And, you know, it was more of an emotional issue. And now again, um, you know, we have a new class of Congress people and um, policymakers, and their first introduction to Myanmar was the Rohingya crisis. So they're being forged in this human rights lens fire of how they view Myanmar. And it really speaks to the consciousness of, you know, what can we do here? And so it's it's looking at our toolkit to see what can we do to try to deter the behavior, change the behavior. Um, and, you know, there are very different schools of thought on how you can do that. And sanctions were certainly one of those sticks. Um, It was something that Aung San Suu Kyi, who uh, was one of the key figures in the 88 uprising, was the leader of the National League Democracy Party, one of the most well-known pro-democracy parties that participated in a sham 1990 election, defeated the military's um, Potemkin political party, and then were jailed because they won. Um, She definitely supported sanctions and trying to squeeze the junta to um, basically change its ways. And it first started with um, suspending military sales and military to military training. So um, some folks might know it, and I'm going to get the acronym wrong. Uh, I met and um, foreign military sales, but uh, if if I start saying the wrong acronym, I know that um, some viewers will quickly correct me, so I won't even say what it was. Um, It was also spending counter-narcotics cooperation. So those were the first tastes of that um, in 1997 during the Clinton administration. So that's Reagan and Bush, uh, Bush number one, HW. Um, Then Clinton, after Aung San Suu Kyi, when she was released from house arrest, her uh, 
convoy was attacked and of course other, you know, allegations of gross human rights violations. Um, and he suspended all investment, all new investment. So companies that were already there, which there were only really a handful, um, like Chevron, um, there were some banks there, um, either divested or stayed there, but couldn't make any new investments. So they couldn't expand uh, their business there. They couldn't, you know, build another pipeline. And then sanctions really ramped up in the Bush administration. And this is partly because we just saw like a new round of horrors that came out of uh, the junta. And in 2003 is where you started to see the creation of a more targeted sanctions approach. Because before this, most of the tools that we have are something that you would see in Cuba or Zimbabwe or Iran, which were really embargoes or very blunt tools that instead of you know, targeting the people that you wanted, ended up having unintended consequences of making the lives of everyone else miserable. And that's not what you want to do in a case like Myanmar. So um, in 2003, you had the Burma Freedom and Democracy Act out of Congress, um, where they banned the import of anything of Burmese origin. So, you know, don't bring back your teak chairs or your ruby and jade. Um, and then you had the Tom Lantos Junta Anti-Democratic uh, Efforts Act, the Jade Act. And that was also um, around the time when uh, Treasury had its specially designated and blocked nationals list where uh, President Bush created designations um, or criteria to designate individuals that we felt were, um, because at that point I'm in the government, that's when I'm using the royal we, um, were responsible for maintaining the status of the junta, providing material support, um, committing human rights abuses. So that's when uh, you started seeing individuals and companies and entities being added to the, the so-called SDN list, which basically meant anyone who was added to these lists, um, U.S. companies or U.S. individuals could not do anything with them, nothing transactional, um, no business, of course. Um, you could talk about the weather, but that was about it. And um, that really blocked off a lot of people in the economy. They couldn't you know, work with the U.S. dollar. And I think that made a big difference in its opening. Um, and one of the policies where I think people were fairly on board with was, you know, how do we get these guys off? Because you want to not have this in forever. Um, you know, I think Jack Lew, the former secretary of the Treasury, said this in, in some of his departing remarks that if you're creating a sanctions program, you need to see how it ends as well. The idea is not to have sanctions forever because hopefully your policy is accomplishing what you're set out to do. And so looking at Myanmar in 2011, um, with the things that were starting to change, a lot of the requirements that we had asked for has started being met. Aung San Suu Kyi was out of house arrest. She was giving us signals that things were really changing. Uh, we heard the same thing from civil society groups. But we also heard a lot of caution as well. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi and her NLD were allowed to uh, run for empty seats and won and were allowed to sit and be in government. Um, there were a lot of movements. And, you know, there was a National Human Rights Council, which, you know, was kind of a sham as well. But, 
you know, they were making moves to improve things. And so we had to ask, and that was the first question that, you know, that government came up with was the Thane Sane government was, when are you going to lift sanctions? We want sanctions lifted. And sometimes, and you can't really see this, it's better seen in hindsight, but, you know, when you put in sanctions in place, sometimes it's more useful when you unwind them because you can show the world of possibilities if you only did this. It's, it's hard to imagine when you start, you know, throwing things at them that have been on for years and years and, you know, you kind of forget what the world of possibilities were. And Myanmar had been super isolated from the world since 1962. So, you know, what did, what did all this actually mean? Um, but there were a lot of folks that just were not convinced that this government had done enough to warrant the easing of sanctions. Um, they wanted to see a lot more. Um, and I think for, you know, some of the U.S. government that supported the easing of sanctions said, you know, we need, there are still a lot of concerns going on, but we need a new set of tools to deal with those issues and old sanctions programs. It looks like we're moving goalposts rather than addressing current issues. And, you know, we have to build kind of a trust mechanism here. So, you know, the players on Burma policy, and I think this speaks to the emotional issue is, you know, it's all grounded a lot of it is grounded in, in human rights. So you had a lot of human rights groups and civil society organizations, um, both inside and outside of the country. You also had Congress. You had very powerful senators like Mitch McConnell and John McCain, Jim Webb. Uh, you had, you know, committees like the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, and then you kind of had a divide throughout the U.S. government where, you know, you have the the White House, State Department, and within State Department, there were even divisions, you know, folks that followed human rights, some that focused on, you know, just bilateral relationships. Um, and so, you know, it it was a real debate because, you know, people got tied to the country and wanted to make sure that we did the right thing. And this was changing a policy that had been basically frozen in amber and had only been punishment and no reward. And so that, that scared a lot of people. And so, you know, critics of the easing really felt like it was given something for nothing. And I think, you know, the initial easing, they were fine with, you know, uh, access to the international financial system. There was really no issue around that. There was some concern over lifting the investment ban because they felt like there was going to be a gold rush of businesses that were going to go in and exploit everything and not, um, care about human rights when in fact, you know, Myanmar was so underdeveloped, it was like too overwhelming for a lot of companies. Um, but 2016, when the SDN list uh, was basically nullified for Myanmar, that's when a lot of folks had a lot of issues um, and really spoke up. And that included some members of Congress, mostly in the House, um, but also human rights groups. But I would note that there was a divide between human rights groups and civil society organizations overseas and those that were in the country. Those that were in the country wanted sanctions lifted. They were cautious. They were, you know, had no doubt that the military could not be trusted and felt, you know, this is kind of a fragile place, but we need economic development. We've lived through poverty and not having access to like, restaurants and known brands like they wanted this but you know it was a lot of the outside human rights groups and diaspora communities that were wanted to maintain pressure um so there was there was a real rift there too 
Um, but it was, it was really complicated. And, you know, a lot of us got angry emails, photos of dead babies because, you know, blood was on our hands for doing this. And um, it, it was hard. It was a, it was a tough decision, but you know, it's, it was certainly debated thoroughly for sure. You know, I, I had the, you could say the, the good fortune to, to go to Myanmar myself for, um, for various work projects kind of after the country's kind of opening. Um, and, you know, it was one of the most interesting places I'd, I'd ever been. Um, I think presently for the reasons that, that we've talked about, you know, it's, it's got, um, like it's got, it's got natural resources. It, it's got, it, there's clearly kind of a latent economy that was being suppressed by policy mismanagement. Um, it was, a, it was, a people were excited about the country's future. You know, I wonder for those who've never been and maybe only have, have read about Myanmar through, through through headlines through newspaper articles um you know what was the country like during that brief window of 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 opening um between um i guess 2016 and 2021 and it goes back even further i say even 2011 2012 is when folks really started to go so after secretary clinton's visit it almost gave a tacit green light for folks to visit. So you start seeing all these leaders go from around the world wanting to see the change for themselves. And then the next thing you know, these once empty hotels, like honestly, no one was there. Um, and, you know, a lot of uh, NGOs and UN offices and agencies basically had offices and hotels because there were there was really hardly any office space at all. But the change and the pace of the change was mind boggling. Um, but at the same time, and it, you know, it's a very Southeast Asian saying, but it's <laughs> so much changed, but it didn't. So it's like same, same, but different. But um, just in the city of Yangon and, and you know, also elsewhere is you know, the internet connectivity and the ability to use a phone. It's, um, you know, internet used to be thousands of dollars to connect and then hundreds of dollars, if not thousands of dollars to, you know, maintain your internet connectivity every month, you know, cell phones didn't exist really. And if you have one, who you're going to call, I mean, no one else had it. SIM cards were hundreds of dollars. So suddenly, you know, in the course of a couple of years, so in 2014, I think it was, they issued tenders to mobile operators and towers were going up. And all of a sudden it's like, you can start texting people from the airport to be like, I'm here or, you know, take photos in Mandalay and post it to Instagram. I mean, just wild stuff. And, um, you know, I, I think that also, you know, caused problems later on the, the Rohingya side, but, you know, the landscape and the, the, the skyline of Yangon started changing too. I mean, there were only a few hotels in Yangon and all of a sudden, you know, there was a glut. I, you couldn't get a reservation and things that used to be like rooms that used to be like $75 in a five-star hotel or, you know, $40 in like a decent hotel suddenly were hundreds of dollars a night if you could get it. Um, but there were some good things too. Um, the art community flourished. Um, the food scene was fantastic. I mean, you know, I, I would get food poison pretty often. Um, and then, you know, and there weren't really many options. Um, but then that started to change. There were little restaurants popping up and they were super delicious. 
um, you were able to travel more in the country and, and see a lot more. Um, and, and it was just fascinating. I mean, the country, you have the Himalayas to the north and snow, and I think the highest peak is 14,000 feet. And then you have the Delta at the bottom. So, you know, in one day of flights, you go from, you know, the top of the world to sea level. It's, it's just incredible. Um, and the topography and, and geography, it just varies. You have a dry zone, you have like forests that you would think you were in the middle of Switzerland. It's, it's just wild. But, you know, I think one of the, um, biggest changes I saw though also was traffic. There was nobody on the road, you know, in the early days, um, you know, you could drive across town in 10, 15 minutes and, uh, you know, when the import ban on cars was lifted, and that was a Myanmar government or a military policy, um, all of a sudden everyone had a car. It was left-hand drive. It was right-hand drive. Uh, buses, the same thing, left-hand or right-hand drive. So sometimes they, you know, take a bus stop and people pile out in the middle of the street. Um, yeah, so driving became like a extreme sport, and uh, I don't miss that so much. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, the change was incredible. You had people who were getting access to education, to telehealth, to medical health, um, jobs, uh, business. I mean, name brand businesses and trading houses. Um, they were popping up everywhere, and people were getting trained and skills based. And there was there was just a lot of excitement and hope for the future. So, you know, we, we can't talk about Myanmar and not talk about the Rohingya um, and uh, the actions that Myanmar's army took against the Rohingya, the refugee crisis, um, the violence there, and, and so on. Uh, you know, we, again, we, we, we see the headlines um, of the violence, of the hate speech, and what social media may have done to amplify it, um, the refugees and the camps in Cox's Bazaar. But you know what? What do people, you know, need to know about what happened with Rohingya? What what happened in 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 Rakhine State? It's it's a tragic story, but it's one of many in Myanmar. Certainly, though, I would say that the Rohingya um, stand out particularly because of the violence and hatred that have been driven towards them. Um, they, you know, I, I think share a undesirable spot in the world of one of the least wanted ethnic groups, you know, with the Roma and others, um, they've just been treated horribly by everyone in Myanmar, but also in the region. Um, where that hatred comes from, it's, it's unclear. I mean, a lot of it, I think, is based on racism, um, you know, very dark skin. Um, you know, most people think they are not from there. They're from Bangladesh. Um, you know, and then there's a lot of theories that, you know, spread on social media, but were also believed even before the advent of social media. And some of the same arguments that you hear from, you know, anti-immigration folks in the United States, which is, you know, they're just coming here, the displacement theory, they're coming here to populate it and drive the Buddhists out and outnumber us, um, you know, they're just pretending to be refugees and burning down their own houses so they can get citizenship in the United States. Um, you know, they're really just trying to take over the country. They're terrorists. And because they're Muslim, that was just a cherry on top. It's primarily a racial issue. And then it took this sickening, uh, 
religious turn when, you know, that that was really just the conversation on terrorism really, I think, opened a Pandora's box of of violence. Um, and when you had Rohingya based um, or ethnic Rohingya groups attack military or police outposts, that was all that people needed to see to know, oh, they're terrorists. Um, but, you know, this this goes back decades, if not centuries. And, you know, thinking of British colonialism, this hatred has been around for a long time, but it shouldn't give you the whole picture of what Myanmar is. Um, it is a violent place, certainly. And there's a lot of ugliness, but it is a mirror of a lot of other countries, including the United States and, um, you know, others that grapple with religious and ethnic and racial issues like this. Um, but I think one of the smallest of silver linings in the coup is both for the ethnic groups that have been in the country's periphery and for their Hinga as well, is that, um, when the coup happened and the military started bombarding urban areas like Yangon and Mandalay that were dom- predominantly in Bamar, um, they got a taste of what the ethnic groups got. Um, former political prisoners said, you know, one of the, <laughs> again, the smallest of silver linings, some of the um, best national reconciliation efforts were in prison because, um, you know, they were imprisoned with former military intelligence officers. There was a a purge in 2004 and they were all arrested and thrown in jail and and they were responsible for arresting a lot of pro-democracy activists. But you also had um, ethnic activists as well. And so, you know, pro-democracy activists would come back to prison after being tortured and was pretty bloody but then they'd see, you know, a, a Kachin or a Chin uh, prisoner come back and was, you know, looked like he got in the rack. Um, you know, ethnic Bamar would be 10 to a cell while, you know, Kachin would be 100 to a cell. Um, when you went into, you know, national ID card lines, like, you know, going to the DMV, the line for ethnic Bamar was much shorter than, you know, other ethnicities. So that was definitely present. But there came to be an understanding among the pro-democracy and former political prisoner folks. Um, And then, you know, once the coup started, but, and there was greater sympathy for the Rohingya too, but it took a long time. Um, Again, you know, once you start saying that the Rohingya are terrorists and you see the rhetoric coming from other countries that are afraid of Muslims and have a lot of Islamophobia or racism it's very easy to pick up that language and use it and justify your actions. And, you know, you had Aung San Suu Kyi go to the Hague to defend the military's actions against the Rohingya, which shocked the international community, but it played very well to the domestic audience that this is mother Sue going to protect our country. Um, no one understands what these folks are and what they're doing. And there was frankly a lot of support for what the military was doing. And a lot of it came out of, you know, racism and, and misplaced beliefs about who the Rohingya are. I mean, it's, it's you know, we all live in a glass house and can throw stones, but it is really a mirror of, of what we're seeing, especially in the United States. Um, but it's, it's definitely being played out in Myanmar. It's, uh, it's not great, certainly. So, you know, obviously the 
the coup in 2021 was a was a was a shocking event that definitely closed um, the window of of reform of opening that Myanmar was on. We're kind of back to um, the bad old days. In some ways, worse even with the kind of much seems like much more generalized violence. Um, it can be easy to kind of take an event like that and kind of extrapolate backwards to kind of see things as inevitable because of how things ended. Um, but I guess, you know, what, what does the coup tell us about Myanmar? And, you know, I guess, was this democratic development always doomed or was there some other path um, that may or may not have been possible? I think what it shows, and it's not just for Myanmar, but globally, is just how fragile democracy can be. And when you have a precedent for a coup, it's really hard to put that back in the box. Um, and, and that should be a lesson for the United States as well. Like once you tread that path, once you explore that that is a, a potential option, it's very hard. I mean, it's, it's like Chekhov's revolver. Um, you can't introduce it into a play and, and not use it. And so I think what the coup shows is just how fragile this was. Um, you know, in every, and you look in the region too, every time Indonesia goes through an election and a government sits, everyone breathes a sigh of relief. You know, it's, it's only been a democracy since, you know, 1999, um, but it's never guaranteed. And it, it's a struggle to maintain it. Um, especially when you have vested interests in um, in the old days. This regime, I think, completely miscalculated just how much uh, everyone hated the military. They didn't expect um, that people would rise up so much. I mean, I don't know why they keep getting surprised by this. They've lost every election they've contested, even though they've stage managed it to the hilt, but they just can't get why no one likes them. Um, it's... And I don't think we can change that anytime soon, but you gave the people a taste of democracy and hope for the future, like an actual future. We're going to have jobs. We can start a family. We can start building, you know, a little nest egg, maybe buy an apartment, you know, just send our kids to college. And those hopes have been dashed because, you know, the last time there was a military government, it lasted almost 50 years. And, you know, I wouldn't say it was inevitable. I think, you know, those realists on Myanmar expected that there were going to be major obstacles, um, you know, that comes from having an opposition party that was only an opposition party suddenly governing. And, you know, maybe with a bit of arrogance that, you know, everybody loves us. So by, you know, dint of our mere presence, everything will be solved. Um, there was a lot of lack of capacity and, you know, they weren't addressing some of the issues that, you know, the pocketbook issues that people wanted to see, but they were also chipping away at an institution that had been around. And, you know, this is something that Myanmar has to contend with. Indonesia did as well. Argentina, Chile, they all did too. Um, but how do you ease the military out? It is a careful balance. And, you know, there are many contributing factors to what happened. I mean, ultimately it was, um, you know, Min Aung Lang was like, I'm tired. It, it was like Ne Win in 1962, not exactly the same, of course, but, um, you know, generals wanted their own cronies. Um, you know, the, the cronies that you see now are not the cronies from yesteryear. These are new names. Um, they liked that patronage system and they liked being on top. They did not like the democratic governance and they did not like 
discussions of Aung San Suu Kyi sitting above the president through her state counselor role. They didn't like the idea of chipping away at their constitutionally allocated 25% of all parliamentary seats, both in national and regional governments, um, and kind of undermining some of their efforts to secure the peace process, which you can't have peace if you continue to shoot. and then when the Rohingya crisis happened, it, it opened up yet another opportunity for the military to kind of just stand back and let the NLD dig a grave from themselves, where, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi loses the support of the international community to the military, perhaps. She was the one that was going to open the country up and attract the kind of investment and engagement that he needed, which, you know, eventually could lead to mill mill ties, but, you know, deliver. And their lives weren't getting any better. And now if this was a vehicle to attract the international community and now they've shunned her, okay, well, we don't need her anymore. And frankly, maybe we don't need this experiment either. There was nothing in it for us, for us from the beginning. Um, we had no incentive. So now we're back. Um, so when you have precedent, the same goes for Thailand as well. You know, once it's in, in your imagination, it's hard to let it go. And in Myanmar's case, um, it just really showed how fragile it was, but what a careful balancing act it was to keep the military on side and try to continue this democratic experiment. Um, How long could they go with this weird hybrid government? Um, You know, it it was, and also non-acceptance on the military side that people really hate them. So I think I have one more question. Um, and, you know, I think you, you talk in the book about, about sanctions, how the U.S. Um, tried to think about sanctions on Myanmar, how to, whether to maintain them, whether to repeal them. Um, and, you know, obviously the question of sanctions are, are back in the news, um, you know, given, given current events. Uh, but kind of what does, what does the Myanmar experience tell us about that process. You've already hinted at kind of kind of some of the big picture thoughts about how to think about sanctions, how they work. Um, but again, kind of kind of what does Myanmar kind of tell us about the the power, the usefulness, the implementation, the potential unwinding of sanctions? Yeah, that's a good question. It, it definitely is in the news. I mean, every day you hear about new um, sanctions on Russia, and um, you know how this is meant to squeeze Putin and his oligarchs. And so where are the similarities between Russia sanctions and Myanmar sanctions? And um, just a note, when the Burma program for the SDN list went away in 2016, what the U.S. government used to start targeting you know, military officials that were involved in human rights abuses against ethnic groups like the Kachin or the Shan, um, but also the Rohingya, was using the Global Magnitsky Act. Magnitsky Act was initially put in place to target Russia for human rights violations um, by torturing uh, a lawyer by the name of Magnitsky. Um, and then it became a global act, like the Drug Kingpin Act um, or, you know, counterterrorism acts, um, you know, it wasn't focused on one country, it became, you know, a a universal tool. Um, For sanctions, the idea is to change and deter behavior. That's, that's the case. And I think, you know, when creating these programs or enforcing them, the idea is what is the end goal that we want to see? And when do we know when we've achieved that so that we can unwind this? And what happens if things start slipping? So you have to kind of think 
a year, five year, 10 years ahead um, and be flexible, which is easier said than done, especially when it comes to a government bureaucracy. Um, some of the lessons learned is, you know, blunt tools have big consequences. Um, it depends on what you're trying to do. Are you trying to, you know, subvert the economy? Are you trying to have an embargo, like in the Cuba case? Um, for Myanmar, you know, I, I think it, it was a lot of it was optics and, and targeting bad people. Um, but there's there's some real differences, though, between Myanmar and Russia. And I, I think there are important differences. Um, for one, Myanmar is not nearly, hardly actually connected to the international financial system than Russia. Um, the one thing they had in common is they both were part of the SWIFT system, which um, allows banks to talk to each other and transfer money. Myanmar was not and, you know, or needed their SWIFT updated or else it was going to be a crisis. That is certainly something that you can hang over and it matters greatly. Um, so that usually gets government attention um, because that cuts you off from the international financial system immediately. Um, but Myanmar, otherwise, you know, there were no ATMs. There were no like international banks in Myanmar. There was no credit cards. And most money that any wealthy person had was put overseas, whether, you know, in Singapore, Malaysia, or, you know, offshore bank accounts that couldn't be touched. And generally, they weren't in US dollars, they were in euros or some other currency that wasn't impacted by sanctions. Um, so cutting them off from the US dollar, um, you know, in a, the licit market really didn't have much of an impact. And, you know, you could find US dollars on the streets at any time. That was just how it worked. Um, the other thing is, is you know, Myanmar had alternatives for, for markets to go to, um, both in the before times and the current dark times. Um, China was there or the PRC was there to uh, facilitate trade. They're the largest destination for jade. So even when you cut off jade sales, which are you know, one of um, the biggest money makers in Myanmar, you can't convince the PRC or its customers that you, know, you can't buy jade, um, you're supporting the military. Very little jade sales go to the United States or anywhere else. Um, you know, they also had military connections with Russia, which, you know, one of the first trips Min Aung Lang did take was to Russia. And, you know, they get their um, jet fighters from them. Um, they also engage with Belarus. They used to have a, a good military relationship with Israel until, you know, human rights groups shut that down, North Korea and the PRC. So they can get weapons if they need it. I don't think Russia is going to be a good customer or good provider at this point, um, unless they need hard currency, but, you know, they're both kind of in dire straits there. Um, but Russia was definitely much more of a global presence and um, oil and gas was basically their, their leverage. And which is why, and this is important to note too, for a sanctions program to be successful, it only works when everybody's on board. As soon as you lose one, um, you just open up a, a an option, an alternate. So when Germany decided to shut down um, the gas pipeline, um, it was surprising. Um, but it was also showed, you know, where they stood on this issue. And as Europe started turning away from Russia and cutting them off and banding together with the United States and Canada and other Asian governments, it had a real impact. For Myanmar, um, it always had an alternative. 
China, India, Southeast Asia, you could not convince them. And, you know, they take a neutral stance. You're even, you know, seeing some disagreements with um, on Russia, but for the most part, a lot of support for uh, Ukraine. Um, you know, they, they always had somewhere else to go. It wasn't ideal. And uh, ultimately, the Myanmar military just does not care about its people. That was so evident in Cyclone Nargis. So you could sanction them and, you know, say you're hurting the people. They don't care. And it's clear that, you know, Putin doesn't care either. Um, you know, I saw a photo exhibit of some of the images from Ukraine, which were, I mean, dead kids, babies, you know, <laughs> this man is a monster. Um, but these people just, they don't care about people. So you have to think about what is going to get to this man? What are his interests? Is it money? Is it power? Where does he get those sources from? So that's where, you know, the Myanmar case is interesting by targeting the cronies. Um, they have less options. Um, they can't send their kids to schools where they want to, like, you know, they can't go to Harvard. They can't go to any school in the United States, not in Western Europe. And, you know, it's why you're seeing this attack on the oligarchs. Um, it's, it's a very similar policy because those are the people that provide material support in Myanmar's case to the junta, in Russia's case, Putin. Um, and when you try to squeeze those sources, then the pain is felt at the top. And that's usually the goal of some of these STM programs. And usually their cronies or oligarchs have enough influence, it is hoped that if they can't support Putin and Putin agrees, um, you know, that these sanctions are having an issue. Um, and if they can convince him that you need to do more so that we can on, you know, improving the situation so that we can have, we can support you. Um, ultimately that's the goal, the, but you know, for that to happen, it, it can take a while. Um, and you have to hope that, you know, the people you're trying to change and deter behavior are rational people. So with that, I think that ends our conversation with Aaron Murphy, author of Burmese Hayes, U.S. Policy and Myanmar's Opening and Closing. Aaron, I actually have a couple final questions for you, um, which are, uh, where can people find your work and uh, what's next for you? These are very important questions. Um, you can find Burmese Hayes on a number of platforms. Um, the easiest right now is going directly to the source. If you go to Columbia University Press, you can buy it directly from there. Uh, you can also go to Amazon. Um, bookshop.org. I've seen it in Target and Walmart, um, not in the stores, but online. So you can just kind of Google it and, and find it there. And what's next for me? Um, obviously following the Burmese story, but, you know, from a bit of a distance, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to go back, but, um, you know, any steps I take, driven by impact and making sure that I'm working in a job that improves livelihoods of the communities that we're trying to help. And, uh, you know, once, once you get a taste of public service as well, it's hard to let it go. So, you know, I'll be flitting in and out. I'll be in Washington, um, trying to do my best and, um, yeah, keeping an eye on Myanmar. 
So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsiaReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. You can find casual author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The AV Podcast is on all favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Um, stay tuned on info is coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. <laughs>